Quinn. Hey, Lindsay. How's it going? It's going pretty well. So, I feel like we should do this intro. Let's do it. All right. This is Viral, a podcast for the public's health. We talk about the history of public health, plagues, and the people who work to protect our health. And today, we're going to get all fired up. Yeah. Because we're going to talk about public health and advocacy. But I thought that we couldn't do advocacy stuffs. Guess what? We're We're doing it. But what about, because I can't, because I am government man. But guess what? When you clock out, who are you? Uh, I'm, I'm then become Quinn Man. (laughs) Hello, Quinn Man. Quinn Man. And I'm Mr. Manager. Mr. Mr. Quinn, Mr. Quinn Man, you are a constituent when you're Mr. Quinn Man. Oh, man. So I can just put my constituent pants on? You sure can. I hope they're red, white, and blue. (laughs) No. Oh. That would be desecration of the flag. Oh, shoot. Because, okay, have you thought about it when people wear red, white, and blue suits or pants that a part of the flag is, like, on their butt? Okay. It's like rubbing but on their butt. They're not using butt. like old flags to make the material for pants. But it is a it is a flag that is the symbol. But it's not a flag because it wasn't ever a flag. It was pants. I'm just saying. You just want to talk about butts. Look, just because I want to talk about butts doesn't mean you can just shut it down. Well, I'm going to shut it down. So. Okay. Uh, yeah, we're going to talk about advocacy today. And butts. And, you know what? Butts may be in there somewhere. Who knows? We are going to talk about hygiene, so it's very, very likely that butts are going to be involved. Okay. So, so yeah. So we know that the history of public health is really a timeline, right, of scientific discovery and the evolving knowledge of how humans interact with their environment. And all of that is through the anthropological lens that we use to understand how these events happened, right? Yeah, that was poetic. Thank you. However, the history of public health advocacy is a little bit harder to pin down because obviously the term public health hasn't always been used. Um, And really this kind of depends on definitions, as so many things do. Semantics, man. Yep. So... Public health as a profession was recognized was not really recognized until the formation of the American Public Health Association, which was in 1872. Um, and advocacy is normally viewed as an attempt to influence policymakers to make, repeal, or change legislation. So when did we start doing this as a profession, right? Well, let's just look at the first recognized U.S. Act that was passed to take care of a group of people, right? A population. Ooh, okay. Do you know what it is? Uh, does it involve rat catching? It doesn't. I'm I'm sticking to U.S. laws in this episode, okay. so because it's easier. <laughs> does it have to do with butts? Um, it could. It could. It could. I does feel it have like to we're... do with food? Um, well. Oh God, so I, I okay. I'm just gonna tell you. So, so when we look at the first act that was passed in the U.S. to take care of a group of people, right? We have to go all the way back to 1798 when John Adams was president. He's the second president of the United States. In case you didn't know, mm-hmm. he passed the act for the relief of sick and disabled seamen. Eighth grade mm-hmm. Snickers aside. This was the first time the government made sure a group of people, in this case naval officers and sailors, were cared for, and in turn started a network of marine hospitals across the United States. Hey. Yeah. And actually, the creation of this network is really, really important because that actually is what started the Commission Corps of the U.S. Public Health Service in 1889. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. Yes. So in 1878, which is just six years after the founding of the American Public Health Association, smallpox and yellow fever were spreading across the globe. It was cray-cray everywhere. People were dying. Children, moms, 
weird uncles. Mm -hmm. People were just dying. And obviously smallpox and yellow fever are like horrific diseases to die from. And that scared a lot of people in the United States. So Congress actually was prompted to enact the National Quarantine Act because of that. Um, and implementation and immunization efforts were the responsibility of the Marine Hospital Service, as we mentioned before. So this is kind of a weird example of how sometimes our government can be proactive. Weird, right? Yeah. It's like... Not reactive. Yeah. Like, whoa. How did that happen? So you kind of may think, okay, wait. Aren't the how are these historical advocacy events? Because normally we think of advocacy, we think of like grassroots efforts with people mobilizing, knocking on doors, right, and being like, "Hey, our water's got lead in it." Megaphones, yeah, like, Aaron Brockovich, yeah, like, "Hey, there's like poop in our water," mm-hmm. you know. Well, at the time, public health was a limited function of the government, and therefore Congress established many of these legal functions. So it kind of took a while before we had even any semblance of a public health system. So when the American Public Health Association was formed, it was really to try and figure out the concept of a national health service and what that would exactly look like, right? So... When APHA was formed, they started working on standards and reports that could help inform legislation and the field. And like I said, from the inception, APHA was working to establish a a national health service and the standards for testing water. um, They had a report establishing that mosquitoes were carriers of yellow fever. In 1906, the first Federal Food and Drug Act was passed following a publication of APHA standards and methods for the examination of milk in 1905. So during that same year in 1906, APHA published the American Journal of Public Hygiene, which now is the American Journal of Public Health. That was changed in 1911. And that created a publication for public health workers to turn to for research, for new trends, and also just professional advancements in this new expanding field. Um, And luckily, APHA really provides a great timeline of history. And some of these events are advocacy-related and some of them aren't. But I'm just going to highlight a couple, and we're going to kind of talk about some of them and why they're important. Cool. So, in 1908... The United States adopted APHA's standardized death record. Or, I'm sorry, standardized death certificate. Why is that important? Um, Because then you have have one way of measuring uh, how people died, how many people died, where they died, when they died. Whereas before, it was way less standardized. Right. It was just all over the place. Right. And there's right no on, like... like the back of an envelope or... Uh, he hey, died because uh, he had a fungal... I don't know. The gate just stopped working. <laughs> he did. His heart is just bad now. It just kind of... <laughs> he got the boils. <laughs> yeah. So it's really important to have a standardized way of collecting data to look at trends using epidemiology and biostatistics so that we can actually say, hey, in Pinellas County, we had a lot of people with infected butts that died from that. Maybe we should look into that. And uh, the great the great butt-itis <laughs> epidemic of 1912 was thwarted. Was thwarted. Which is why we have uh, a giant butt statue You're right. in, in the middle of our town You're square right. You're right. on Central, it's beautiful. Central it's Avenue bronze. down there. Bronze butt. But um, but <laughs> constantly vandalized. Yeah. I, I, you know, I don't see what those kids see in it, you know? It's like there's so many other things to vandalize. Why would you, why would you desecrate a derriere like I, that? No. Don't desecrate our derrieres. I actually think that's, that's a, a really... plaque. Yeah? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Should be a social marketing campaign. Don't desecrate our derriere. Don't desecrate our derrieres. So you're right. We needed a standardized death certificate, so we had a way to measure what was going on. Because if Pinellas County 
measures, you know, different types of uh, mortality than Hillsboro. Maybe they maybe they have the same term but different definitions. That's problematic because we really don't know what's going on maybe statewide. So, in 1909, APHA published its standards of the examination of air, which I think is pretty ahead of its time. Night air? (laughs) Night air and thinking about, like, our episode on environmental health where we talked about the Great London fog or smog, right? The Great Pea Super. The basis of the Great Pea Super. Uh, Obviously, air pollution was kind of a big deal, and we had no way of, we had no standardized way of testing it. So APHA said, hey, let's create some standards so we can test it. And again, later on, maybe let's pass some policy so we can control air pollution. That'd be cool. That'd be real great, guys. Uh, interesting, in 1932, President Hoover spoke at APHA's annual meeting. Interesting. Why is that notable? Um, what year was it? 1932. 1932. Uh, well, we would be in the Great Depression. Yep, not great. Thinking, thinking Dust Bowl. Yep. Um, let me see what other health issues are going on right then. Well, even looking at it from know. a broader context, having a U.S. president speaking at a public health conference, why is that notable? Well, it, it legitimizes the field. Exactly. Exactly. When a U.S. president recognizes that your field is important because he comes and speaks to your, you know, body of professionals, mm-hmm. I mean, I just, think... Just like how President Trump has acknowledged InfoWars as... No, I'm, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> as I look away as in you disgust. Look away in shame and disgust. <laughs> yes, <laughs> sort of like that, but... But not at all more, like that. More horrifying, sure. <laughs> Uh, it is notable. We we also know that it's important for politicians and um, every level of government to be involved in what's going on in public health. So a good way to get to get policymakers involved is to actually have them attend professional meetings mm-hmm. so that they can hear what's going on in the communities that they govern. In 1948, the United Nations, with strong support from APHA, was established. I'm sorry, with the United Nations, with strong support from APHA, establishes the World Health Organization. Good job on the second try there. Thank you. Words is hard. (laughs) Obviously, the World Health Organization was very... They still put out all sorts of reports on global health issues, um... They're working diligently on tracking and eradicating different diseases across the, uh, the earth. What do you think? Um, I'm just spitballing here. Sure. What about if we founded a galaxy health organization? I'm on, As soon as you said galaxy, the I was G-H-O. on board. We can talk about the health of our galaxy. Do, Intergalactic we, are we Health to, Organization. Oh, man. That sounds so freaking cool. I, Yeah. Because you know what? If there's sea monsters on Europa, they've probably got stuff that they're dealing with that needs to be addressed. Mm-hmm. And there was an article that just came out about how, yes, Mars colonization is great, but, like, it's going to wreck our bodies trying to get to Mars. And, like, what are we going to do? Public health goes into space, my friends. Space health. Space health. Oh, my God. We just started a new field. Hashtag space health. Hashtag space health. You and I get honorary doctorate degrees Mm -hmm. from Moon University now that we've established space health. (laughs) Is anyone listening? Is anyone listening to me? Am I alone? Sorry, I was was actually still um, in the moon. I... I know. I was still out there um, in space. In your moon library. Yeah. My moon library. <laughs> it's so fun to think about. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The Civil Rights Act, even though it's not necessarily uh, directly public health, uh, well, when you think well, of public health. Absolutely but is public health achievement. It absolutely is. And it was very, very hard fought to get. So 
1973, the Supreme Court cites APHA in its decision to strike down anti-abortion laws. Mm. I actually did not know that. Yeah, me neither. Roe v. Wade, kids. APHA was cited. Cool. Pretty crazy. And my last notable, and there's obviously a lot of notable events, um, but the last one is in 1982, APHA officials testify at the first congressional hearings on AIDS. Hmm. Which is very, if you want to talk about public health advocacy, I think the HIV AIDS epidemic is a complicated and salient lesson on the power of grassroots advocacy and how, well, if we want to talk about being scientifically objective, right? Yeah. There were some scientists that were not scientifically objective because of their own personal beliefs around HIV. Their own personal biases and influenced their decision making. Exactly. So, which can go both ways. It absolutely could. Yeah. It absolutely can. Your own values and um, and beliefs and passions for progressive ideas are, can inform certain things, but also people's prejudices can kind of push in that opposite direction. Imagine. Living- it's almost like someone's worldview influences their thoughts and behavior patterns. Yeah. Like, <laughs> imagine if you were scared of, like... Culture. People who were gay, but then you were like, oh, I still have to treat them. I mean, I don't know what world that's in. That's totally hypothetical, but... Uh-huh. Yeah. Or where, you know, we're scared of using the restroom with somebody, but yet we don't want them to participate in our military. Well, another issue that a lot of people don't really think about as a a public health issue or a public health adjacent issue is uh, immigration. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk in a few minutes with our guests about that issue and how it actually has some pretty profound public health implications. And um, even though it's a a touchy subject now... um, public health as a field, and we remember our conversation going all the way back to when we talked with Donna Peterson with USF, that public health is a goal. No matter mm-hmm. the person, we our goal is to promote public health for all. And all means all. Right. Not like, well, everyone except for the people I don't like or I'm scared of. It's all. All people. Inclusive, guys. Yeah, so that's all I have, you know. That was a good little timeline. Thank you. Thank you, American Public Health Association, for your wonderful timeline. And they're not the only ones. No, There's a lot of other advocacy organizations. Uh, The Society of uh, Public Health Education, SOFI, they have an entire history as well. There's, you know, the American Heart Association, American Mm -hmm. Lung Association. Yep. Um, There's a lot of other foundations that fund research um, and uh, do grassroots organizing. And um, if you work for one of these organizations or have a really interesting story, reach out to us because we'd love to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, if one of the things I, you know, at least kind of gleaned when I was doing the research for this episode was that it really wasn't until we had professional societies of people that were working together to really advocate for some of these policy measures that we started getting stuff done. Because it what I mean, the National Institutes of Health, like large bodies um, that did all of the research to try and help inform medicine or help inform policy, those aren't established until after APHA or after, you know, some of these professional organizations were formed. So yeah. when a when a field is legitimized right? Because as a professional organization, they've made started to make standards for health educators. Then we can start thinking about, you know, the research that it takes to be able to, you know, advance the field, right? Yeah. So, And I do think that there's a difference between um, there's education, there's advocacy, and there's lobbying. And a lot of people, you know, yes. there's there's a really big red line there because if you're paid through government funds, you are not allowed to lobby. 
um, your role is much more on the education spectrum where you use data to um, make recommendations. And we need people who use data to make solid recommendations. And we also need people who um, can advocate for certain positions. Uh, I feel like there's a hesitancy for public health professionals to do the advocacy because they'll think that it is lobbying. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. There is a, there, I mean, it is a, a fuzzy line where lobbying is much more like calling your senator or representative, asking them to vote a certain way, which you can do as a citizen. Um, you can do that as a public health professional, but not um, as your you know, official uh, job. However, uh, unless you work for like an advocacy lobbying type organization. Like a, what is that, a 504 or something? So, but in terms of advocacy, like you can use data to cite a certain position and to say, you know, the data indicate that taking X action would result in Y outcomes, therefore... I support taking this action. Um, and that's, that is much more an acceptable and defendable behavior than um, slipping a hundy. Just throwing out there like, hey, like, hey, you idiots, you should vote for this thing. Yeah. And um, it also is a little bit more of a successful approach, probably. So, yeah. I, I will say, too, and I'm just going to, like, plug an organization that I um, I volunteer with outside in my constituent Lindsay person, and that's the League of Women Voters. And they have chapters all over the United States, um, and they also obviously have a national chapter. The League of Women Voters was actually started after... The suff- after women finally got the right to vote, because essentially it was suffragists that were like, hey, we've got the right to vote, and we've organized all these great networks. Why don't we put that into making it into an organization to influence uh, policy by having a large voting block? And it's not just for women. Men can join, too. Um, but, yeah, at least in the state of Florida, some of the issues that we work on are uh, we do have a reproductive rights committee. We work on social justice issues. Uh, We are all about getting people to register to vote. The League of Women Voters is nonpartisan. So if you're kind of like, oh, I don't know if I want to be a part of a, you know, partisan organization, they are nonpartisan. One of the things that I enjoy about being in the organization is that it actually takes them months before they decide to take a stand on a particular issue. They do a lot of research and there's a democratic process really to figuring out what kind of stance they're going to take on something. And then they finally come out with a position statement and then they come up with an action plan. So uh, they've been around for a long time and I'm sure there's probably a league in your area. So if you're interested, check it out. Highly recommend them. So Cool. So yeah. who are we talking today in our interview? We are talking to Sari Billick from Human Impact Partners, and she is a public health organizer working on the Public Health Awaken Project. Cool. Yeah. So let's go to the interview. All right. Let's let's assume that it works and go from there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we have Sari Billick from. Human Impact Partners. She is the she is a public health organizer who coordinates Public Health Awakened. Welcome to the show, Sari. Thanks. Awesome. So we we kind of wanted to start out with you just kind of explaining what Public Health Awakened is, how did it start, and what sort of projects or issues Public Health Awakened is focusing on right now. Sure. So um, Public Health Awakened um, is a group that was started by Human Impact Partners, which is a a public health research organization in Oakland, California, that that works nationally. And Public Health Awakened was started after the November 2016 election um, in response to the election of Trump. 
And it started with a small group of public health folks that came together to talk about how they were feeling about the election and what role, if any, public health could play. Um, and it quickly turned into a much uh, broader group that now has grown to 950 members um, across the country. And we have members in 42 different states. Um, so the idea of Public Health Awakened is that it's a network of public health professionals who are committed to organizing around health equity and justice. And when we talk about health, we're talking about more than just healthcare and behaviors. We want to look at health inequities and the social determinants of health. So the systems of power and oppression like racism, sexism, poverty, housing that affect people's health. Um, and we believe that public health professionals can um, use their power and their expertise and the resources to have a voice in resisting the policies that marginalize communities and create health inequities. So, okay. um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. These are, this is like an awesome, awesome introduction. Okay. So what kinds of things do you do? Do you uh, do education for policymakers or lobbying or um, educating the communities or a little bit of all of that? Yeah, great question. So um, we um, have been focused on creating materials for public health uh, professionals and public health departments around different issues um, that folks can then use to um, raise their voices in the national debate. And so we've created info briefs, we've created guides that um, talk about a particular federal policy issue, um, talk about what the connection is to public health, and then give people concrete action steps for how to take action. So um, just a couple of the things we've worked on. Um, the first thing we worked on was a guide for supporting uh, immigrant rights. And so uh, what this was, was a guide for um, public health professionals and public health departments um, to think about how um, locally in health departments they could support immigrant communities. So we've seen that immigrants are using services less. They're uh, not showing up to appointments. Um, they're afraid to go into public spaces. And mm -hmm. so our guide has really clear action steps of what public health departments and professionals can do in order to support those communities and make sure that people are still using their, their services. Um, and the resource that we created has been really widely used and several health departments around the country have used the guide to change internal policy, to educate um, staff, uh, and to start conversations to make sure that uh, their services are accessible. Um, oh, Sarah, Sarah, yeah. yeah. Not many, Not people, many people probably, probably think, think of, of uh, immigration, immigration as a public health issue. Um, why is it a public health issue? Yeah, great question. So um, when we think about um, the services that folks are using, right, that um, – People are go using going to health clinics. People are, um, you know, going to the doctor, right? These things are obviously related to health, right? But when the current administration is constantly attacking immigrants and threatening deportation uh, and threatening, uh, you know, the safety of these communities, um, it creates a fear that people are then afraid to show up to their doctor. They're afraid to um, send their kids to school. They're afraid to, you know, go to a clinic. And so um, this has an effect on on people's health, right? That um, if kids aren't being vaccinated, um, getting their vaccines, if, um, you know, immigrants aren't going to the doctor, right? This is obviously going to have um, an effect on people's health. But, you know, it goes beyond that. And it goes to the fact that, you know, families um, are being separated and parents are being sure. deported and kids are being raised um, maybe without a parent present or, um, you know, in constant fear. And these have effects on 
you know, the health of the children and the parents. Um, and there's all sorts of, you know, uh, you know, social and political factors that uh, contribute directly to people's health. Um, and we're seeing this more and more um, in since the election that there is this um, fear among immigrants and people aren't accessing the services that they need and families are being torn apart. I, I think that it, I think that, um, you know, especially providing a guide for health departments is really a, a novel idea. I mean, I know that there's a lot of different organizations that put things out for health departments to use, but for something as as almost kind of scary for health department employees as, as immigration rights. I think it's good to have some sort of guide that they can use that, you know, they can kind of toe the line of like, Hey, I'm just trying to help my community versus trying to make it a political issue. So let me give you, I'll give you some examples of like some of the specific action steps that we include in our guide. Sure. And so there's, there's nine of them, but I'll just give you a few examples. So one is that um, health departments, um, uh, promote health agency policies that provide services to all people and to ensure that people understand that they're welcome in the agency. So this could look like um, something as simple as just putting up signs saying everyone is welcome here, just so that yeah. in different mm-hmm. languages so that people feel welcome. Um, another one of the action steps is to support cities and counties and states that are um, providing sanctuary for undocumented residents. Um, and so we're seeing different kinds of sanctuary city policies popping up around the country, and we want to make sure that health departments are supporting those. Um, some of these policies come along with making um, public spaces um, into spaces that ICE agents can't come in so that people can use uh, public services without fear of being deported. Um, so, And then another um, action step is just connecting um, undocumented clients with legal um, assistance and uh, community organizing groups. So having those resources to be able to connect people with the services that they need. So those are just a couple examples of some of the actions that uh, the guide suggests. Awesome. Those seem very reasonable and not super scary. Um, <laughs> as somebody yeah. that's worked in government before, um, but uh, yeah, so what other issues have has your organization been working on besides immigration rights? Yeah, so of course, you know, while we're focusing on issues beyond health, the current debate around healthcare has taken up a lot of our time. And so um, we've put out a lot of resources around uh, the health impacts of repealing the ACA and of repealing Medicaid. Um, and we've been pretty focused on that these last couple weeks. Um, and so what that looks like is we are um, providing information on what it looks like to dismantle ACA, what it looks like to take away Medicaid, and asking people to make phone calls to um, their senators, um, to their representatives, um, asking them to... Uh, vote no on any ACA repeal and to support the continuation of Medicaid. Um, we've also um, provided resources on what it looks like to attend a town hall or to do a legislative visit and to, in your local district, go and visit your senator. Um, and the idea of this is that um, people can go as public health professionals to um, decision makers and talk about these issues from a public health perspective. As public health professionals, we have this role to play where we have a lot of knowledge and expertise. Um, and so we're providing um, talking points on how do you talk about this issue from a health perspective? So how do you talk about immigration or um, healthcare or whatever other issue it may be? Um, from a health perspective and use your position as um, a public health professional. And so um, people have been using our resources in a lot of ways. People have um, written to their legislators, called their legislators. People have attended town halls. Um, uh, We encourage people to write op-eds in their local papers on um, issues that they care about to give that health perspective. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then also, I think that there's there's a piece of the work we're doing where um, we're 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 focused on um, these federal policies and attacks on um, communities, particularly marginalized communities, communities of color, low income communities. But there's also something to be said for doing work locally. So while there's all these attacks coming down from the federal government, a lot of cities, counties, states are working on passing really important policies and legislation that actually um, protect these communities and create health equity. And um, we want to make sure to support those local policies as well, um, because in this moment, uh, that's where a lot of the good work is happening. And so, uh, you know, we want to not just focus on the federal issues, but also figure out how public health folks can support um, local efforts as well. There's, There's a, lot a lot of things, things going, going on at the state and local level that people can have a voice in. in. Yes. Um, I'll give you one example. Um, here in California, um, California is working on um, passing a bill um, that's currently making its way through the state legislature. Um, uh, it's SB 54, and it would it's basically a sanctuary state policy. And so um, it would make California a sanctuary state where um, any law enforcement um, could not be used as ICE agents. So um, local law enforcement, campus law enforcement, um, security companies couldn't uh, go into communities and deport people. Uh, yeah. the, legisl the legislation would also make it so that schools, libraries, um, um, health centers would not uh, would be private spaces where ICE agents couldn't come in so that people could go to school, could go to the doctor without fear of being deported. And so yeah. um, we're asking our members in California to take actions to support this legislation um, as well. And like as things are popping up in other parts of the country, we want to see our members like using their position as um, public health voices to, um, you know, support things that uh, support legislation that, you know, helps communities and uh, oppose any legislation that harms and further marginalizes um, communities. Okay. Um, so let's see. Do you think we have spent, as, as public health professionals, do you feel like we've spent too much or too little time preaching to the choir? I mean, we're all kind of, we don't really do advocacy very well. Um, we're more all about, you know, doing community and individual interventions, but we really kind of lack. I would say on the whole, like public health professionals generally get it. They do. Like these guides of actionable steps are really, really helpful. But in terms of getting people to understand sort of the broader context of health um, as more than just health care. The uh, Affordable Care Act in the past seven years has done a lot towards getting people to understand that health is more than health care, but we still have, obviously, a long way to go. Um, what do you think about, about this issue? Yeah, so I think, as you said, traditionally, there hasn't been a movement for health equity within public health that goes beyond healthcare. And so part of what we're doing is we're aiming to create that movement by both educating and activating public health um, professionals. And so I think that in this current political moment, um, it's less of a question of, are we preaching to the choir or not, but it's about bringing people into our movements. And so while I think that public health is often um, talking about the issues, the idea of public health awakened is to actually um, get people to become organizers and to become activists and to um, have them actually act on those issues. Um, yeah. Yeah. So and providing actionable things or actionable items for people to use, I think, is a really great way of doing that. A lot of people... A lot of people who work in public health departments probably don't 
know or understand that um, even though they're government employees and they, as a government employee, as their role as a government employee, can't, you know, call the senators and ask for certain votes on certain issues. But as a person, when they go home, Quinn, the citizen, can call and speak with my um, with the uh, representatives and and say, I am a public health professional and I understand X issue and here's data that supports this. You should do Y. Um, so I think, yeah, activating people and realizing that they have that ability to do so and they're not going to get in trouble um, is, is important. But also I'm trying to understand the context in which um, your city or state is in because like the things that you guys are doing in California are awesome, but it's like we're in Florida and some of the the rural South, especially around us is like not even to that point yet where we've got to find those little tiny baby steps um, to get things. That's exactly right. And I think that it's it's absolutely right that you as an individual can do and say what you want. And so a lot of people have joined Public Health Awakened, um, not at all part of their job, right, as individuals. But as individuals who know a lot about um, public health and about data and can use that to elevate their voice around these issues. And so, you know, there's, there's two things. There's one is that um, we want people to, as individuals, be calling their legislators and writing op-eds and um, using their voice to speak out um, on these issues. And the other side is that we also want to see people pushing their health department or their institutions or um, their you know, universities or wherever they work um, to be better about these issues as well. And so what that's going to look like in different states and different institutions is going to be really different. So, you know, what we're doing in California is going to look really different than um, what's happening in more rural or conservative areas, but there's still work to be done. So, you know, small steps like, um, you know, put, putting up signs in um, the waiting room of a clinic could actually be a really big deal and a hard push in some places um, that say, you know, we support everyone. That might not be an easy ask in a lot of places. Um, but even just getting health departments to be talking more about health inequities and to be looking um, at health in a broader, um, the, a broader sense and looking at the social determinants of health um, can be the small steps that someone can take, you know, to push uh, the institution that they work in. But at the same time, people can be, when people don't have that ability to be uh, making change within their workplace, just making a phone call to your legislator, particularly if you're in a conservative area. I'm in California, and I know that my senators are on board with a lot of what I, you know, think is the right position, I'm yeah. still going to call them, but I know that they're going to do the right thing. But if you're in a conservative area, that call to your senator is even more important. We just saw that around the healthcare debate, right? That a couple senators, Republican senators voting no on the healthcare bill made the difference. And so we want to mm -hmm. see people in those conservative areas mm -hmm. getting active and calling their senators because that can make a real difference. Even showing up to their local office and having a meeting, you know, getting a group of other people who are health profession, public health professionals to show up and um, meet with your senator and tell them about what's important to you. What are you seeing um, in your research? What are you seeing uh, with your patients, what are you seeing on a day-to-day -day basis and why is it important that they support or oppose particular legislation? So I think everybody has a role to play no matter where they are. And, you know, there's also, I think, particularly in more conservative areas, getting an op-ed in your local paper, right, um, where you can 
talk about a particular issue, talk about why it matters to health. Um, your legislators are going to see this, you know, your health departments are going to see it, um, the general public's going to see it, and that um, starts the conversation. So, how, how do, you do you measure success? success? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's hard. I mean, I think that there's really concrete ways um, that our movement as a whole beyond much bigger than Public Health Awaken can measure success, right? So um, again, we look at the recent healthcare debate that the calls and emails and social media posts yeah. and lobby visits that people made to three Republican senators who voted no on the health care bill completely made the difference. It changed, it. It, changed it changed the outcome. And um, so I think a lot of times people think, well, if I make a phone call, um, what kind of difference is that going to make? But we're in a political moment where people are really fired up, right? People are upset. People yeah. are showing up in the thousands to mass protests. And so um, we can capitalize on that energy and that your phone call isn't just one phone call. It's all those people who are angry making phone calls and that's, you know, making legislators reconsider. So um, I think that in itself is a form of success. Um, but at the same time, I think that the looking closer at public health, um, the way we can measure success is by the conversations changing. So mm -hmm. the public health community um, starting to talk more about um, about issues like immigration and climate change and housing and, um, you know, criminal justice and talking about these issues as health issues, that conversation shifting I think is a measure of success because so what do you think about um, the difference between scientific objectivity in public health and the uh, um, supporting of progressive ideas? Because I think there's a, there's a, there's still a lot of value in having a, a purely objective scientific organization that, um, produces science and you can, you know, trust them to not put a spin on it no matter what. However, when something egregious happens or something kind of incredibly earth shattering like the, the Trump election, um, we kind of need people to take a stand. Um, so I kind of go back and forth on this issue myself. But what do you think about it? And what have others kind of um, said to you about about their um, particular allegiances? Yeah, I think that there's a place for both, right? I think that there's a place for, for um, to be scientifically objective. Um, and I think that there's a place for acting on your values. Um, and in this moment, um, I believe that um, we need to act on our values. Um, that's not to say we should throw, you know, scientific objectivity out the window, but I think we can use um, we can use the research and we can use the data to act on our values. Yeah, um, to me, it all goes back to message framing and um, supporting your your point of view or your position with evidence. Um, well, and I think I think in this sorry, I think in this political climate, too, is that you have the politis politicization of of scientific fact. Right. You have something that is traditionally objective that's either been called fake or, you know, liberal or or conservative in some very few cases. But so you're kind of I think a lot of times, especially now, we're forced to take a stand as public health professionals, whether we like it or not, because being factual is now a political stance. That's right. That's right. And that if, you know, if facts um, aren't considered, you know, important anymore, then we have to act on our values and we have to use what we believe are facts 
to act on um, to act on our values and to do what we believe is right and use the evidence um, that we have to support the actions that we're taking. I agree. And I think that when you get into public health, you know, you, I mean, I know, at least in my case, I chose public health because it aligned with my own personal values. I value being able to give back to my community, you know, making a difference. And, you know, I think a lot of times public health professionals have to kind of take a step back and say, it's okay to act on your values because that is a part of who you are as a public health professional and as a person. You know, we value science because science can tell us a lot and it can inform our decisions. And, you know, and sometimes it does align with our personal values. So, you know, there's something to be said about being passionate about your profession and, you know, that it's okay to say, you know what, I care about other people. And so therefore I support this issue. Yeah. And I think that part of what we're doing as Public Health Awakened is um, we're redefining what it means to be in the public health profession, that it can mean being an organizer and an activist. It can mean using your profession to speak out um, for what you believe in. And mm-hmm. we're giving people the tools and resources and a platform to be able to do that. And, you know, we want people to take our resources and use them to, to do what makes sense. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, we want, we want to push people like past their comfort zone. Um, but also there's a lot of different, um, ways to take action and we want people to, organize and figure out what makes sense. Okay. So, um, let's say, you know, you are, you want to tell someone now how they can get involved and become a member with, uh, public health awakened. What are some ways that people can uh, get on board, find out what you guys are doing, use the tools you have, et cetera. Great. Well, first of all, you should go to our website, which is www.publichealthawakened.com. And on our website, you'll find all the resources and materials that we've um, created. And each of our materials um, has specific action steps that you can take. And so you can use those materials to take action. Um, And then... uh, I also hope that folks will um, join our network and you can also do that through our website. Um, there's a form that you fill out and um, you'll be added to our listserv where we're sharing the materials and also um, having conversations and sharing different resources um, among each other to um, find out what's going on and stay aware of the different issues that are coming up. Um, the other thing is that you can also follow us um, on Facebook and Twitter, and you can find us on both at EH Awakened. Um, and, you know, we post articles and our resources. Um, we also have been hosting webinars, um, and our webinars have been focused on bringing community organizers who are working on a particular issue in to speak about what communities are are doing to organize and how public health professionals can play a role um, in in that uh, organizing effort. And so uh, folks can join our webinars as well to learn more about on the ground organizing that's happening. Awesome. Okay, okay so, so do we want to talk about the, the stuff, stuff that we're reading or enjoying? Yeah, let's do that. Sweet. So you want to start, Sari? Sure. Um, let's see. So I'm in Northern California where we have beautiful weather. It's not too hot. So I've been trying to get outside as much as possible. Um, particularly hiking, um, up in the hills near my house and, uh, I'm so jealous going swimming where I can, though we don't have, we don't have too many swimming spots and the ocean is very cold to swim in, but um, and then in terms of what I've been reading is I've been, I've been reading this book called This is an Uprising. Um, mm-hmm. it's by Mark and Paul Engler and it's, uh, it's about the organizing and strategy that happens behind, 
um, nonviolent mass movements. And so it's looking at like the recent Occupy Black Lives Matter and Arab Spring movements that sort of appear to be spontaneous movements and looking at what's the actual like long-term strategy and organizing that was happening to create the conditions for these mass movements to happen. It's pretty interesting. And I'm working my way through it slowly. Nice. Uh, what about you, Quinn? Um, I am currently reading a book called H is for Hawk. And it's by a woman named Helen MacDonald. And she's a British author. And she's also a, a poet, a naturalist, and a... Um, a falcon, a falconer, falcon. I think it's falconer. Falconer, yes. And so she wrote this book after um, the the loss of her father, and she trained a goshawk, and um, she wrote about training this bird, and it's fascinating. It is such a good book. I cannot awesome. highly, I cannot recommend it more highly. Awesome. It's really good. Um, yeah. What about you, Lindsay? Well, I'm actually reading the book that you gave me for my birthday. Uh, it is the Amazons lives and legends of warrior women across the ancient world. Yes. <laughs> and it's just as badass as you might expect. Uh, it's by Adrian Mayer. Um, and really what it, what I love about the book is that it talks about a lot of in, I guess, classical, um, when you were looking at classical Greek history, the Amazons were really looked at as a mythological uh, group of women. But what they're finding through archaeological evidence, and now that they can actually test bones to see what gender um, different bones are at grave sites, they're actually finding that Amazons were real. Oh, yeah. And uh, they were um, prominent and kind of like the Caucasus um, and near like Dagestan and like Uzbekistan and all of those in that area. But yeah, bands of warrior women basically uh, ran around and, and in some of these, in, in some of these nomadic tribes, they were also like men and women, but they equally fought, but they're finding, you know, grave sites that have been like, they have like lavish, you know, weapons and other, you know, burial artifacts. So it's, it's kind of turning um, the Greek myth kind of on its head, which is really interesting, especially now, you know, with Wonder Woman coming out and stuff. It's that's kind of interesting. Thymuscira was an actual place. Yes. Which I did not know. Um, so, yeah, that's what I'm reading, which is not necessarily public health related, but it's definitely inspirational. Mm -hmm. um, although I don't really want like a, a battle axe to the skull, which is a lot of these grave sites have no. <laughs> women with like giant head injuries. So, but yeah, that's what I'm reading. So, yeah. Since we last talked, I also read a book called Isaac Storm, um, which is by Eric Larson. And he write, he's the same uh, author who wrote Devil in the White City. Ooh, that's um, a good one. And so this one was about a 1900 hurricane that devastated Galveston, Texas. Mm, mm -hmm. And so when we talk about public health and emergency preparedness and uh, disaster response in a future episode, I'll probably talk about this because, yeah, it was bad news bears. And we actually just had a surprise tropical storm on Monday. We did. Uh, we all expected just like a couple days of rain and woke up on Monday morning with a tropical storm. So it was, I mean, it, 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 there was a lot of flooding, which, I mean, we can. It was fine. Yeah. It, well, for most people, <laughs> sure. But, uh. But yeah, well, thank you so much for participating in the in our discussion and providing more information about Public Health Awakened and some of the things that people can actually do to become, you know, more engaged, especially since I feel like a lot of us, you know, have felt a little downtrodden or just, I don't want to say helpless, but, you know, sometimes it gets overwhelming because you feel like you can't, you know, you're one person and you can't do anything. But I think... You know, with the tools that Public Health Awakened is offering, um, I think that's helpful. I think that gives people hope. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, it was nice to talk yeah, to you. Yeah, it was so nice talking to you. Thank you cool. so much. Good yeah, time. no problem. This is great. Today's public health fact is brought to you by our friend Sandy, because she's just been so great about getting us public health facts. Anywho, 
Dr. Stephen Smith is credited with establishing the first national public health network in the United States. Dr. Smith and his colleagues published a remarkable study about sanitation in the city in 1865, leading to the establishment of the Metropolitan Health Board in New York City in 1866. With other visionaries, he founded the American Public Health Association in 1872. What's even more remarkable about Dr. Smith is that he lived until the age of 98, more than double the average lifespan of when he was born, which was only 41 years. Thanks for listening to Viral. Today's show was written and produced by Lindsey Grove and Quinn Lundquist. Our theme is Take Your Medicine by the Quick and Easy Boys. If you like today's show, please leave us a review on iTunes and uh, follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. A special thank you to uh, Human Impact Partners for uh, coming and talking with us today. And as always, please remember to wash your hands. <laughs>